Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. The Handel and Haydn Society and its audience have been enjoying seeing each other now that concerts are back on following the shutdown, a vital and welcome change. We are all looking forward to the return to Boston of our artistic director, Harry Christophers. Harry is directing Handel's Messiah, a work that is central both to his career and to the Society's story. It is also likely to be Harry's final outing with the work here, in his capacity as our artistic director. He's departing at the end of this, his 13th season, leaving the Society more stable, commended, and recorded, and having set the bar quite high indeed. I wanted to discuss Messiah with Harry, and I'm delighted that he's here. Harry, welcome back to Tuning In. Good to be back, Guy. So we're speaking on a Saturday. You're in England, and I'm in Boston, and you've been hard at work all day in your kitchen. Is that right? Yeah, I, I call it my stir-up weekend. It's the weekend I tend to sort of get the Christmas cake made and uh, and a very special Christmas chutney that lasts the whole year round. So this is not something I'm familiar with. Uh, I'm not sure we serve it here. What is a Christmas chutney and is it savory or sweet? Oh, well, it goes with any cold meat. It's like any sort of, well, you know, you know, pickle, Branston pickle. Do you have that? So this is a chutney. It's a much more refined thing. So it's got dried dates, apricots, prunes, onions, lots of fresh ginger. You cook it for about an hour and a half and uh, it's cooked inside the vinegar. So the thing is, the whole family disappears from the house while I open every window <laughs> and smell the place out with vinegar. But uh, yeah, and then I, I jar it away. And as I say, it lasts, it will last a year, it'll last a year and a half probably. Wow. Terrific. It gets better as it goes on. And can we have the recipe? It's a Delia Smith. So Delia Smith was, God, Delia Smith's cooking Bible was a number of years ago. It's probably, I don't know, 70s, 1970s, something like that. And she did a famous book called Delia's Christmas. And it's got typical old-fashioned you know, English uh, recipes for Christmas cake and Christmas chutneys and all sorts of things. So, yes, I think it's going to appear in a book soon, by the way. So, Terrific. Especially for H&H. Well, maybe we can preview it here for our listeners on the podcast webpage. Yeah. Actually, much more important, I think the one we should print is the Christmas mull. It doesn't matter to be called Christmas. It's a mulled wine, and it's, it's absolutely lovely, really simple for everybody. Delicious. So a preview of things to come. Folks, keep an eye out for Harry's cookbook. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're here to speak about Handel's Messiah, which is a central work for the Handel and Haydn Society. The organization gave the U.S. premiere in 1818 and later began a tradition of annual performances that continues into its 168th season this year. Now, this is not the only great oratorio by Handel. It's not the only oratorio out there about the life of Jesus. It's not even a Christmas piece. Uh, it's an Easter one. But apart from containing one of the most famous choruses in the literature, it has become an inseparable part of holiday music making. 
I'd like to begin by asking if your first experiences and exposure to the work were within that context and what they were. What was the first time you remember hearing the work and what is the first performance uh, you gave both as a participant and as a director? What's your history with Messiah? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a famous piece in England. And it, for me, I mean, I remember singing one or two arias from it when I was a chorister at Canterbury. So that would have been when I was about 10, 11 years old. And Alan Wicks, who was a choir master, used to get us. On Thursday, even song would be full boys. It would be 36 of us. And he would get us often to sing um, How Beautiful Are the Feet, just full, full boys. Just, I mean, great music to sing, fantastic lines, a great tune. So, you know, my first sort of instance was with the odd aria, really. And it wasn't until I was a student at Oxford and every year there would be what was called the Fellows Entertainment towards Christmas. So this was just after term had finished and, and the choir would stay out for a week and we would just have dinner after dinner after dinner. It was, it was brilliant, Kai. It was absolutely amazing. We were treated to all these wonderful wines and fantastic food. But at the Fellows Entertainment, we had to sing as well. And unfortunately, we had to sing, I think, after the meal, which wasn't necessarily the best idea. <laughs> oh, but no. uh, yeah, one year would be part one of Christmas Oratorio and another year would be part one of Messiah. And it was great, but it wasn't until I left Oxford and was in the choir of Westminster Abbey when I sang my first ever full performance of Messiah as a male singer in the Westminster Abbey Choir. And that, instead, it was with one Christopher Hogwood conducting mm. um, and with very early days of the Academy of Ancient Music. And, uh, yeah, it was televised. And, unfortunately, I think there are bits that people can see on, on YouTube. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I wasn't very good at singing 16th notes. Um, I now bash the chorus about how to sing 16th <laughs> notes. But I wasn't very good. And I, I used to sort of call on my chin to sort of do a bit of wagging. And, uh, you know. So at least you look like you Yeah, yeah. And actually, there are clips of that. And it was also very interesting for another reason, because the BBC, and again, this is on YouTube somewhere, the two trumpeters and Tim player couldn't go into overtime on a particular day. And, and the producer of the BBC television said, no problem, that's okay, we're not, we're not going to use you. But they did go into overtime that day. And we were doing, I, I suppose, something like the Alleluia Chorus. And if you go onto the Alleluia Chorus, the camera pans on to two empty stands and two timps with nobody sitting at it. It's brilliant. Nice bit of editing. But it's a long time ago. So that was my first encounter with uh, with Messiah. So back in what? That would have been 1970, no, probably 1980, 1981, something like that. And would you have first directed it after forming the 16 or did you have opportunities to conduct it before that time? No, no, I never did. So I didn't conduct my first i mean i this this just shows how sort of cavalier one one was in those days to you know informing your own group i'd formed the 16 16 was a choir uh, 18 singers belying the name and i went to a guy called ted perry who who founded and owned uh, hyperion records now one of the major uh, independent record companies and i said to ted because uh, we'd already been recording a whole lot of renaissance stuff with him and i said to ted look i want to record messiah uh, how about it? And I was sort of joking, really. And he said, yes. And I said, what, you know, I haven't got an orchestra yet or anything like that. And he said, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, I trust you, Harry. So I formed the Orchestra of the 16. It was 1985, I think. And we did four 
performances at St. John's Smith Square in London, uh, which was, you know, used to be a church, is now a concert hall. I think it's still consecrated as a church, as a service once a year to make sure it is still consecrated. But we recorded all four performances live and um, Mark Brown, who is my producer and has been ever since, uh, he edited it all together from those live performances and um, and that became this wonderful LP, which scaled everything down. It did incredibly well, but oh my goodness me, I can't listen to it now. It, it's so sparse. Well, I based it on the Dublin version, so I had no oboes or bassoon. It was it was a real budget messiah because we hadn't got any money. <laughs> that story really highlights how important the record industry was to the start of so many period instrument ensembles that are now mainstays. <laughs> it sounds like you were really supported by Hyperion to... Well, add an orchestra to your chorus. Oh, yes, yeah. And it also speaks to one's own evolution in one's approach to the work. It sounds like you don't perform it that way today. No, definitely not. I mean, I had been introduced to it before because in the very early days of the 16, when we needed some uh, money, I used to loan the choir out to Ton Koopman. And uh, that was brilliant. And we did numerous messiahs for Ton. But in fact, funny enough, it was sort of as a result of those performances that I really wanted to do it myself. And I also remember the old Hogwood one as well, and the Abbey, and and that is with the sort of early days of period music. Um, you know, people were getting very much into a different style of performing the work. But actually, the same sort of things that were happening in the big symphony orchestra performances were happening in the Baroque ones. I thought, you know, Messiah was treated like you know fifty different little movements, and there was no connection. And I think that's partly why I you know, was desperate to start doing it myself because I, I wanted to see it as a as an entity rather than just 50 different little movements. I'd like to come back to that point about continuity in your performances because it's one of the things that I enjoy most and it's one of the things that's remained consistent year after year. Uh, you know, we try to remain fresh and vital and reflective of the new people we're working with every season. But there are things that mm. seem to be really important to you, and I'd like to ask you about that a bit later. But before I do, I wanted to ask you about the staying power of this work. You know, Messiah was immediately popular, and performances in Britain, continental Europe, the US, Australia, Asia, these took place from the late 18th century, and they continue to today. Uh, do you have a take on why this work has such staying power? Why, why is it performed so extensively and repeatedly, where, let's say, a Bach passion is a real special occasion? I think with Handel, of course, you know, his first performance was in Dublin. It was for charity. And I think that has sort of kept with Messiah the number of performances right from, you know, the, the first one through the centuries that have been done for charities is amazing. I remember doing one when Princess Diana was alive for a charity of hers. And uh, it's, it's amazing. And also in Handel's lifetime, it was performed by a small group. It was performed by hundreds of people. And so right from the start, it had this ability to be done in a very scaled down way or done with a massive great chorus and, and orchestra. I suppose, when you think about it, the relationship of choruses to arias is, is something that doesn't uh, appear in any of the other oratorios of, of Handel. There's many, many more choruses and the arias, you know, quite a few of them don't have a dark harpo. And the other thing, of course, I mean, you mentioned earlier, but it was first performed at Easter. I mean, this is, as an oratory, it's a rarity because it covers the whole Christian year. It goes from, you know, Advent, uh, the coming of Christ through Nativity, to the Passion Story, to Resurrection, and, and you know, the final word is a lamb and, uh, and Amen, just this sense of fantastic hope that's going forward. 
so yeah, I mean, I think along with you know Bach's Matthew Passion, I think it's it's a it's a blooming good work, and it's always been popular, and it's slightly by accident because you know Handel knew full well that actually if he premiered it in London, it wasn't necessarily going to be a success because oratorios were sung in, in theatres and you know there was quite an outcry that this, you know, having a religious piece in a in a theatre was not right. So by doing it in Dublin and having instant success there, it then ran and uh, he could enjoy its popularity really. So Harry, this is likely to be your last Messiah with H&H as artistic director, mm. which brings up a lot of memories and a lot of emotions for a lot of people. Are there particular things that you especially look forward to in a Messiah cycle in Boston? Oh, well, I mean, first and foremost, as we know, we've got, we've got the most wonderful hall to, to perform in. And because it is Messiah and because it is just after Thanksgiving, it's full three consecutive days. And we have, you know, what was it, 7,000 people listening to it? It's incredible. I mean, that is absolutely amazing. I mean, I think the interesting thing for me is when I very first came and did Messiah, I think I did Messiah before I actually started. I did one and you did. I recall it clearly. <laughs> yeah. And I remember those, those things because two aspects of that. First of all was the chorus in that, you know, they were doing everything correctly, but they weren't communicating. They weren't communicating with the with the audience and that, that had to change. And then in the orchestra as well, I remember saying, you know, oh, look, no, I want to go on to the next movement. And, you know, people sort of looked at me in shock, horror. Hang on, we've got to turn a page. No, 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 you've got to be, you've got to have that page turned already because this is a drama. It's not a symphony where you just finish the first movement and then have a little pause and you start the second movement. I feel now with people that are coming to Messiah in Boston that actually they really do want to revel in the experience, not just do it because they think they should do it, um, if you get my meaning there. And that's exciting for us performers as well, so we can actually enjoy the piece and realize that there is there's so much to be got out of it. Absolutely. Can I tell you something about that first performance? Go for it. You know, I'm very privileged to sit in the principal cello spot at H&H, &H, and I think that one of the jobs of every principal is... Uh, to amplify the intentions of the conductor, the director, to his or her section. And by virtue only of the place where I sit on stage, because I'm the closest to the front, I think it's my job to be pretty visible and demonstrative in amplifying those intentions to the rest of the section, mm -hmm. and also to the rest of the bass section, basses, bassoons, bass section at large. So I move a lot when I play. That wasn't always the case. Not always the case. That performance went exactly as you described it. Mm. I think that if we listen to it today, we might find it a bit lackluster and maybe unsure. Anyway, during break, I was backstage having a break and someone grabbed me by the arm and it was you. You grabbed me by the arm and you shook me and you said, you've got to move. <laughs> <laughs> you were clearly frustrated. And, and I thought, who the hell is this guy yelling at me during my break? But you know what? I got back on stage for the second half and started moving and being more demonstrative. And I haven't stopped since. And so in a real way, I very much appreciate you doing that because it's changed the way I play at H&H &H and in other places. So I owe you a real debt of gratitude. Thank you, guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, now I think of it, I think it's quite funny. Uh, but you must have been really exasperated, and it's very, very difficult. I mean, ultimately, what you're doing makes no sound. 
you're moving your arms. <laughs> and if someone isn't looking and responding, it's very, very hard to communicate and affect any change in what's happening. So are there any performances aside from that one <laughs> that you recall with particular fondness? Oh, I mean, I, I was trying to get a bit of hilarity from everybody. And that's sort of progressed over the years. You know, there's, there's uh, four unto us, a child is born with wonderful counselor. And, you know, I, I remember the moments of great joy in Messiah where you just want people to be smiling, not, not only the singers, but, you know, instrumentalists as well. And uh, now people catch my eye when I sort of mouth the wrong word. I mouth counselor when they should be singing wonderful. It's just a simple little gag, but it just makes people sort of, oh, can I actually smile? Can I have some humor in this? And little things like that, that has an infectious feeling. And I just love it when I see performers just beginning to be part of the, the music and actually fundamentally enjoying themselves. And I have to say, Harry, regarding the request you make for us to take on the joy, well, sometimes it's not joyful, it's tragic, of course. It's a story that contains a wide spectrum of emotions. You really ask the orchestra to take that on in a very sincere way. It's not affected or histrionic. Mm. And I think about C.P.E. Bach's famous quote that we cannot hope to move the listener unless we ourselves are moved. And I really appreciate the stand that you take for that. Each person has to find their own personal connection to the music and the text. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree there, yes. What do you look for in a successful performance of Messiah? Well, that we do see the drama all the way through, and we'd never let it sag. I mean, there is so much chorus in Messiah, and for the strings, you don't get a let up. As a continuer player, you don't get a let up full stop. I mean, but, but that's the same in most of the oratorios. But for the whole string section, that is a rarity. Th that, I think, is part of the success of Messiah, is keeping that energy going right through the work. The other important thing with H&H, &H, and certainly in all my time here, we never, ever go through the motions. And unfortunately, that does happen in, I think, most cities around the world. You know, the very first performance was called an entertainment. And I think that's precisely it. Yeah. And for me, it comes back to your approach. You mentioned several times now that the continuo cellist has no place to rest. And you prefer a continuous approach to the piece rather than you know, 50 separate pieces. You know, after a couple of years of doing this piece with you, I suddenly realized that you really are treating this work like a sermon. Mm. You know, th there's a message in, in it, and it doesn't really matter what your background is, what your set of beliefs are. The message, it's done in a very ingenious way. I mean, it's definitely written for a religious audience, but somehow it transcends that and it becomes a very human story. And in communicating it with the emphasis you put on text, it really becomes a literal message. Yeah. Of course, we're in an English-speaking country, and that helps as well. Oh. You know, I would urge the audience to mind the time between movements and see what happens there. There really is never a let-up of energy and momentum, as there would not be in a sermon, even if you take a moment to breathe. Yeah, people, you know, they always concentrate on Handel and his and his music, the beauty of it, and the simplicity of it sometimes. But actually, they often forget. Jenin's his libretto, because that's what it is, a libretto. The verses he's chosen, not only New Testament, but a lot of Old Testament as well, and then sewn it all together into this amazing um, oratorio is quite staggering. So, you know, he's given us the drama, really. Yeah. Handel, a German, English was not his native language, but my goodness me, he sets it pretty damn well. 
Yeah, it's very, very dramatic. I, I know singers sometimes complain of words being set in an awkward way. I don't sing, and I haven't had that experience. They can get around it, yeah, and they can check. They can always change the underlay a little bit. You know, Handel would have done that. I mean, he was ever the ever ever the pragmatist. Um, Reggie Mobley, for instance, and the alto, because he was despised. I mean, that it's sort of in many ways the crux of a sire. And I remember Catherine Wynne Rogers, who, of course, we've had quite a few times in Boston doing Messiah, saying, you've got to remember that you will all know somebody who's been despised and rejected in life, you know, at school, at university, in later life or whatever. And you've just got to sort of sympathize with that. And it's quite right. And um, and when you get a singer that really manages to control that dark harpo, it because it is long, even if, you know, we will do it at a, at a sensible speed, but it will still last 12 minutes, something like that. It's a long, long aria. And I'm really looking forward to Reggie delivering it because he's got a beautiful quality to his voice and uh, his ornaments are, are wonderfully clever, but never, um, they're always part of the music. And I think that's the secret for, for singers today. We're not authentic when we talk about embellishments and cadenzas in the sense that, you know, back in Handel's day, some of those cadenzas would be pretty extreme. And today we tend to sort of modify them and, and try to make sure they relate to the setting of the words in a very natural way. Sort of in that sense, we're taking it a, a step further, which is rather nice. And the setting of the words, you know, to us instrumentalists, I, I notice the setting of the text now because you really insist that the instrumentalists pay attention to the words. And that's very sensible because much of the time we are performing choral music that isn't concerted. It's essentially doubling the chorus. And so the way the chorus shaped the text is really informative to us players, mm -hmm. how to shape our approach to the notes. We're playing the same notes as they're singing. And it's, it's kind of made me wonder what I was doing before I knew how to do that. It's become so mm -hmm. crucial. It's a mainstay of the way I approach all Baroque music. Mm. You, you know, the, the composer generally gives you such little information about how to play the piece that oftentimes I imagine that there's text there, which of course isn't written in an instrumental sonata, for instance. I try to play the music as though it were spoken. I, I remember a teacher of mine coming to a lesson and after hearing another cellist play, and she said, that yeah. player really spoke to me. And I remember how jealous I was because I wanted to move and speak to someone with my playing. And frankly, I think that she may have been more literal than I knew at the time. I, I think that when you play music as though it were spoken, then it really becomes a language, the language we say it is. And that's something that wasn't so available to me before I began uh, working on Messiah with you. And so it's something I'm very grateful for. Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, there are certain things that I'll get the chorus, for instance, to do instrumentally. I mean, I think about the beginning of the Amen chorus. I get them to phrase that as you do naturally as a cellist. Hazen, you and I, we're often talking about gestures. So much of what we do in Baroque music is a gesture, the way we approach a note. And now I'm thinking of things like, um, you know, even, you know, the first continuing note of I know that my Redeemer liveth, you know, you've just got a half note. That is an introduction to the violins playing without words, I know that my Redeemer. Same music, but it's, it's the way we inflect that and shape it, which is so important. Then suddenly we get the shape and it sort of evolves into the violins unison and it's magical. 
And the other thing I'm always tickled by is the end of Rejoice Greatly. We do the 4-4 version in, in H&H. And at the very end of that, the violins end on a quarter and you've got a whole note. I've always thought, you know, wh- wh- why did Handel write that? It's in, it's in every single manuscript when you just sort of finish on a quarter. But I always get you to hold it on, don't I? And make a diminuendo. And then Ian sort of does his concerto out of it into, <laughs> into, into, into the next recipe. It just tickles me. It seems to work. And, uh, and I love it. Well, he gave us a lot to work with, that's for sure. Yeah. Harry, I'm very thankful you took the time to join me. And it's an understatement to say that I'm so looking forward to making music with you again. Oh, it's been far too long, Guy. It's This is going to be, what, best part of... Well, it's the best part of two years, and I just, I can't wait to get over to see you all. Likewise, that's coming soon, and we have wonderful things to look forward to. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure, Guy, and I'll see you soon. Harry Christophers is Artistic Director of the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandhaydn.org slash podcast for this and previous episodes, as well as supplementary material, including Harry's recipe for Christmas chutney. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. Bye.